Hello and welcome to this episode of Turing Triple Helix, the podcast channel for Scotland's AI strategy. I'm Will Millership from the Scottish AI Alliance, and today we have a bit of a different episode for you. Today's episode is a recording of an event held by the Centre for Technomoral Futures, which is part of the University of Edinburgh's Future Institute. It's a discussion between Professor Virginia Dignam of Umea University and Albert King of the Scottish Government. However, for their introductions, I hand you over to Sharon Valor, the Bailey Gifford Chair for the Ethics of Data and Artificial Intelligence at the University of Edinburgh, who will introduce them both. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did, and over to Shannon. Tonight's event brings together two distinguished leaders in responsible AI innovation in Europe and Scotland. Our guests' expertise and experience cuts across the boundaries between science and government, and both have confronted the complex interweaving of technical, political, and moral questions around the future of artificial intelligence. We've asked them to join us tonight to talk about the challenge of building responsible AI cultures and alliances. The European Union and the Scottish Government have each expressed strong commitments to fostering responsible and ethical AI development. What opportunities and obstacles lie ahead on that path? What new alliances and governance cultures are needed in order to bring responsible AI from an abstract ideal into something concrete that not only garners public trust, but earns it. We often focus on the technical and regulatory challenges that AI presents, but responsible AI isn't necessarily going to come from better software or better laws alone. We need to talk about the new cultures of innovation and the new cultures of governance that need to develop. Our guests tonight have much experience in this area to draw on. Virginia Dignam is a professor of responsible artificial intelligence at Umea University in Sweden. She is the director of WASP-HS, the Wallenberg Program on Humanities and Society for AI, Autonomous Systems and Software. This is the largest Swedish nat national research program on fundamental multidisciplinary research on the societal and human impact of AI. Her current research focus is on the specification, verification, and monitoring of ethical and societal principles for intelligent autonomous systems. She is committed to policy and awareness efforts toward the responsible development and use of AI as a member of the European Commission's high-level expert group on artificial intelligence, as well as the working group on responsible AI of the Global Partnership on AI and the World Economic Forum's Global Artificial Intelligence Council. She is lead for UNICEF's guidance for AI and children and the executive committee of the IEEE Initiative on Ethically Aligned Design. She's also a founding member of All AI, the Dutch AI Alliance. Her book, Responsible Artificial Intelligence, Developing and Using AI in a Responsible Way, was published by Springer Nature in 2019. Albert King is Chief Data Officer and leads the Data Division in the Scottish Government, the Center of Excellence for Data in Government here in Scotland. He is responsible for delivering platforms that support data and analytics for government and public sector partners, <coughs> fostering data innovation and policy in data, digital ethics, and AI. And he has direct insight into Scotland's AI strategy and the role of government in creating a healthy and humane innovation ecosystem that serves the public interest. Thank you, Virginia and Albert, for joining us tonight at the University of Edinburgh. I'm thrilled to have you here, and I know our audience uh, is very grateful for your time and expertise and opportunity to speak with you. I know you're also both taking part tomorrow in Scotland's AI Summit, where you, Virginia, will be giving a keynote on responsible AI, following Albert's remarks on the State of AI report and the Scottish AI playbook. We're grateful to you both for taking the time before the summit for this conversation, which can perhaps serve as a bit of a preview for tomorrow's events. 
So let me start off uh, by asking each of you to briefly define uh, what people should understand by the phrase responsible AI. Um, it gets used a lot, but what does that really mean from your point of view? Uh, Virginia, do you want to lead us off? Sure. Let me start by thanking you for inviting me to be here. It's my pleasure to be discussing it, and I hope we'll have a lively discussion today. Yes, responsible AI, it is in a sense a kind of a misnomer because it's not about the responsibility of the AI software. It's more, it's definitely about the responsibility of us, people, organizations, institutions, for the development and use of AI. So it uh, concerns us, concerns those that develop, that use, that uh, govern, that make policies, that uh, maintain and what are, uh, are affected or affect the AI systems. And it uh, recognizes the, the idea that no software exists in a vacuum and that therefore we really need to address all the legal and ethical and also societal aspects of the context in which software is used. Great, thanks. Well, thanks, Sean, and uh, as well from me for, for having me here today. I guess um, I would echo um, what Virginia says. Um, fundamentally for, for, for me and, and thinking about our commitment in Scotland's AI strategy to building trustworthy AI, your point about earning public trust um, and creating uh, AI systems and not just software, but systems of AI and the governance that sit around them that enable citizens to understand how these technologies uh, make decisions about them, to have agency and be able to contribute uh, views to the development of them. So I think for, for me, it's about um, not just the, the governance, but the ecosystem of engagement that sits around the AI software and systems and solutions. And that, that's certainly what we're um, endeavouring to build in the, in the sort of ecosystem of trust here in Scotland. Yeah, that's great. And I think it shows that we can look at AI as something that if it has these transformative effects on the way that we conduct uh, business or the way that we uh, engage uh, uh, in our responsibilities in government, we can use that as an opportunity to improve those cultures and make them more transparent and more accountable, uh, as opposed to seeing this as just a, a disruption that has to be tolerated or absorbed. Yeah, so, I, I want to ask you about the way that different nations and regions are pursuing their own AI governance strategies. So consider the differences between the strategies found uh, here in Scotland, in the EU, the United States, China, uh, India, many other nations, um, uh, the UK more broadly. Is there any hope of international alliances working toward a coherent set of norms for AI development uh, and governance? Or are we inevitably going to end up with a regulatory patchwork uh, constructed around often clashing regional priorities and cultural values. Yeah, I can. <laughs> That's a big one. I know. It's a big one to Yes, it's actually it's a big one, and it's one which uh, uh, many of us are concerned about it. And uh, I, I often get this question. Uh, I think the, the answer is is not the kind of a black and white answer. Uh, once we talk about high-level principles that should govern this, the interaction and the use of AI, I think that most countries are in agreement. I actually was part uh, as a Sweden, Swedish representative to the discussions at UNESCO level. It was the most interesting Zoom meeting ever. 173 <laughs> countries with two different uh, languages, uh, uh, screens in two different languages, six simultaneous languages. It was a funny thing. <laughs> But anyway, it was clear that all, between all these 173 countries, there was a 
uh, an agreement on the high-level principles, principles of uh, transparency, principles of fairness, principles of uh, human dignity. Uh, those were shared across all these countries. What gets then to the, the, the difficulty is the moment that we start interpreting and operationalizing these principles in norms, in regulations, in concrete actions. In, and there, I think that it's it's not different in AI than it is in other types of uh, systems or in other types of situations. We still don't have uh, an agreement on what kind of uh, electricity sockets we should use across the world. So uh, there is this level of interpretation, which is not just a negative thing, but it's also, I think, a way to enrich and to uh, to show the, the cultural diversity and the, the dif difference between ourselves. But the, the common agreement in terms of high-level values, I think it was clear, uh, quite clear in this UNESCO meeting. I mean, I guess, um, so, so one of the things we set out to do is when we, when we um, uh, launched the AI, Scotland's AI strategy was to actually build a lot of those alliances. So I guess my starting point is, is optimistic that, that we can achieve you know, a coherent set of norms around how we adopt and, and govern AI and these technologies. And, and, and I think maybe, you know, as you say, Virginia, one of the one of the reasons why we adopted um, an existing set of principles in both the OECD principles mm -hmm. and indeed the UNICEF principles that yeah. you've that you've, you, you've led on is is that you know we felt that that provided a coherent framework. Um, I suppose my experience over the last year um, in the conversations I've been having with other governments and other policymakers is that the reality of that is that there are a number of large and i, I tend to think of them of, of, of moral and ethical blocks is quite the right way of thinking quite the, quite the, quite the right language but essentially moral and ethical blocks emerging ar around the world you know driven by um how people interpret and apply those those principles and values and, and i guess the political and, and cultural context in which they're operating um but i don't, I don't think that that's necessarily um intention with you know fundamentally actually um therefore um, for example scotland or um working closely with the eu or others who who share our values so that you know that we we can achieve um a reasonably coherent um set of alignment on the governance and the frameworks and and the policies that we set around the way that we adopt ai um in, in our society and, and i think a particular advantage in scotland actually interestingly enough is that we're a bit constrained in our ability to regulate in this space because fortunately, for example, data protection is reserved. So our focus is actually on creating effectively the soft nudges and the soft regulatory levers that sit around mm -hmm. these systems that, that actually, um, I think, foster adoption of, of these, these approaches in a, more, in, a, in a more meaningful and thoughtful sense. That's actually a perfect transition uh, to my next question, uh, which really is about regulation. So obviously, regulation is just one of the uh, tools in the, uh, in, the, in the governance toolkit, but um, it's an important one. Uh, on the other hand, there's often uh, a, an argument heard that regulation stands in tension or in conflict with innovation, uh, so that the price of AI regulation, uh, some people think, will necessarily be to impede AI innovation. And this is often presented as a reason either not to regulate AI or to regulate it as, uh, as little as possible. Um, so how, how do you, each of you respond to that argument or that challenge? Well, I'll, I'll start off with, if, if that's okay. So sure. I, I guess, um, uh, so 
thinking about it as a from an economic perspective, which I guess is where often uh, people su suggest that regulation sort of Im Im impedes you know rapid economic progress uh, uh, and so on. Um, actually, the the reason why we um, have adopted you know a, a sort of trust ethics and, and in inclusivity first approach here in Scotland is that we actually see effective regulation as an economic opportunity and advantage. So it's actually fundamental to the successful adoption of AI in our economy, in our public services, in our society more broadly. So, so we, I definitely don't see um, these things as necessarily being intentioned. What I do think is the challenge is to get to a place where we have good regulation, because I guess that, that's the key to actually um, getting to a place where the way that we adopt these things is, is yeah, is pervasive in business and our public services, um, and that citizens can engage with that in a meaningful way. I'm often quite struck by um, sort of transparency around algorithms. That if it's not meaningful and it doesn't actually isn't isn't actually a, a meaningful transparency and accountability for citizens, it it becomes um, a bit like um, I shouldn't really say this, but a number of other things governments do that are just about publishing information, putting information out there, and actually drawing people, citizens, into uh, these things in a meaningful way is the challenge. But fundamentally, I think um, good regulation is an opportunity and an enabler of these technologies. I fully agree. I, I often get asked this question. I, I think there are two issues. One is that often uh, the ones who, on, let's say, on the innovation side, see innovation as some kind of uh, God-given right to use whatever technology is there at this moment in whatever way they want. And that's actually not innovation. Innovation is exactly take the, the technology or the, the situation as is and improve on it. And what better way to improve on it than to get some kind of guidance or direction by regulation. So regulation that doesn't really improve innovation is not the, the good regulation that you talk about, but innovation without really caring about the way that regulations or what principles that, that really matter. It's also not innovation. So I don't think that we can see them separately from each other. And by really putting them together, we do manage to, we'll manage to make better regulation and better innovation. And we have seen that in many different disciplines and areas and fields of industry. For, I remember from 20 years ago when I was working with the car manufacturers and then there was this idea that you need to put the catalyst at the back of the car and that was taken like oh this will be really uh, damaging to the, the uh, performance of the car and things will be go very bad and this regulation will really damage our capacity as uh, uh, car manufacturers and actually if anything those catalysts were one of the enables to the much cleaner motors and but also much more efficient motors that we see now in the in the car industry so i don't think that we should be definitely not afraid of uh, of regulation but really use regulation as also business differentiation and a, a way to to provide the direction to innovation that matters and you know on that note i think can't we learn a lot from the history of regulation as well in exactly. cases where this has uh, been been clearly demonstrated if you look at the aviation industry exactly. right regulation yeah. there was one of the primary things that earned public trust to go back to that point uh, in commercial aviation such that it could become the industry uh, that it is today, which 
granted its carbon footprints, perhaps we should okay, uh, yeah. <laughs> consider the, the costs and benefits of that. But just if, if people were concerned simply about the growth of the industry, right, then regulation was certainly there a driver of both innovation and growth. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah. and then you look at the Boeing 737 MAX debacle and look what the cost of regulatory capture is for the industry and for particular players um, who you know, take the sort of short-term benefits. Yeah. It would be nice if, if the conversation around AI innovation had more of a historical, yes. uh, yeah. uh, backward-looking appreciation yeah. for uh, what we've already learned from, from uh, regulation and governance in other industries. And probably in those industries, the, the carbon footprint will really change by regulation in that direction. And That's then right. they, they will go again, put their sinking heads and come up with the cars and the airplanes that uh, do what they are supposed to do and at the same time are minimizing carbon footprint. That's right. And that's how we got catalytic converters in your exactly, yeah, right? Yeah, because exactly. California, where I lived, yeah. created a law, an emissions law, exactly, that required yeah, yeah. those to be developed in order to meet exactly. those Exactly. And then, then they improve everything. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So let's come back to um, the kind of we, we've we've talked a little bit about the um, the kind of governance strategies and and um, and alliances that we need to form, um, but it, it's not just about governments, right? It's about all kinds of organizations that are involved in this in this space. And building responsible AI raises a lot of challenges for organizations, um, some of which are technical, but uh, some of which are cultural and professional. How do we address? Um, those kind of organiza organizational cultural challenges and what are the, the biggest obstacles there uh, in your experience, whether we're talking about industry organizations or whether we're talking about sort of local government agencies that might be using software and, and, and maybe need to develop a, a certain kind of different cultural shift in how they think about using uh, uh, computing or, or AI. Any thoughts on that subject? I love your optimism, by the way, Shannon, that you think humanity is going to start learning from its past. Hope springs eternal. Yeah, well, if we solve that one, you know. Um, yeah, no, I, th I think that's a really good question. I suppose the way I think about this in the work that, that, that we do is that there was something you said, Virginia, about people thinking they've got like a right to innovate. And, and there's a bit of a risk, um, I often think, that, you know, machine learning engineers, they and I, and I speak as a, as a technologist myself, you know, I would love to tinker with this technology purely for the sake of, of tinkering with this technology. It's beguiling. But, um, I, 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 and I think that those professional silos, whether we're thinking about that in terms of, you know, machine learning specialists, or indeed in terms of ethicists and moralists or policymakers, or the people who own the business problems or the policy problems that need to be solved. I think the fundamental thing that we need to do is break down those professional silos and professional barriers. I think there's an issue around, um, therefore, you know, effectively, um, the technical literacy amongst the ethicist and moralist, and the, and, the, uh, and indeed the ethical and moral literacy among the, the technologists, which is why I think the Techno Moral Future Center is so vital and the fantastic work that Shannon's doing. Um, so so that, that's the way I think about it in terms of those kind of professional silos and trying to, and trying to break those down in the culture we're trying to build about um, stronger teams that, that share and innovate. I think then that um, we need to support those people with better infrastructure and we're building a bit of infrastructure to help people do that so that they've got access to the tools, methods and support they, um, they need in order to um, think about these issues um, and, uh, um, you know, uh, sort of engage the public or engage in public dialogues, whatever it is they, they need to do in a more routine and systematic way. So I, I sort of think about it in those, those, those two veins about the infrastructure we create to support people and the sort of professional cultures we need to build. 
I fully agree. I would like just to add one more way or possible. Uh, one of the issues is that we often, or uh, organizations often see responsibility, ethics, uh, and uh, regulation as a kind of uh, post hoc checklist. So we do whatever we want with our systems, we develop it all, and then at the end, someone will come and with a checklist and they will check this. Uh, <laughs> And it's either okay or not, uh, but it's a kind of uh, after the uh, after the the thing has been done. And I think the most the, the biggest obstacle, but also where we can gain the most, is when we manage to turn organizations into the idea we have to start exactly with responsible design, exactly with identifying of the the responsibility, the the, the principles, the values that really matter, and from there move into the design and the development of the of the the, the technical system. So that changing the order of in which people mm -hmm. see things. It's challenging, but once it happens, I see that organizations really start looking at things from a different way. Yeah, I think one way of thinking about this is, you know, the kind of moral ambition um, that when we link it with innovation, you know, allows notions like human flourishing and progress to kind mm -hmm. of come back into play. And right now those words, if you speak them in, in certain commercial contexts, yeah. they seem out of place, yeah. right? to talk about progress or, or human flourishing, yeah. um, certainly to talk about virtue or, you yeah. know, so these, yeah. these moralized concepts, uh, I, I think there's a challenge of integrating them, reintegrating them into both um, political and um, technical spaces. Yeah. But there's also, of course, the danger there, right? Because I think we've all seen it um, and, and many in the audience will, will be aware of organizations having a, a, a very kind of narrow blinkered view of progress so that they uh, think, for example, they're going to solve poverty with an app, right? We, um, we worry uh, about the uh, approach of, of having technical fixes. So moral ambition in someone who has a very uh, sort of simplistic idea of the relationship between technology and progress can actually go sideways very quickly when someone is not looking at the complexity of the, uh, of the problem or they're not bringing in outside perspectives. Um, so so yeah. is, is part of the challenge here then just about how to get organizations to not be so internally focused, but to be more uh, outward facing, more mm -hmm. participatory, uh, to be able actually to respond to the needs that people yeah. are communicating as opposed to telling people how they're going to solve their problems. Yeah. I think so, and I think it's also a matter of metrics. And uh, I'm a computer scientist, and computer scientists and technologists, we are obsessed by metrics. And what can be met measured is what counts, and what counts is what we uh, optimize for. Mm -hmm. So we are optimizing for metrics, which is kind of the, the normal way, and there, there are conferences full of uh, papers in which they optimize 0.0.1% over the previous paper, which has uh, optimized again 0.0.2% over the previous one, and that we go forever happily like that. And if we start, and the metrics, and what kind of things we optimize for are things like speed, like accuracy, like all kind of very mathematical type of uh, quantities. If we really start, are able to change the culture into, okay, fine to have metrics, fine to optimize, but start optimizing for human uh, flourishing, optimize for, um, for participation, optimize for uh, cost, uh, uh, carbon footprint cost of the systems that you are doing, we can really change the mindset. 
But once we, while we keep just optimizing for accuracy or for uh, for efficiency, we are not really uh, kind of able to change the the equation. Yeah, I think something you said there, Shannon, about um, you know, like an app to solve poverty that, that sort of resonated quite a lot with me. And, and I think in there, there's something about as well just the way the industry actually talks to, particularly to leaders um, in in companies and and public service and. Um, there's a bit of a sense um, that that the technology here is in some way magical and can unlock progress simply by and, and I think so. So there's a bit of responsibility on technologists, on computer scientists, but on the industry to just be a little bit more honest about um, what its technology can actually do. Um, and but at the same time, I think and, and this is again something that that you know we've invested quite a bit in to try and um, develop greater literacy amongst our leaders about about both the shortcomings and the opportunities around some of this technology so i think there's a little bit of a bit of realism and, and taking a bit of the magic out of it is, um, yeah. is a little bit of what we need to do as well and actually if we go back to the different uh, guidelines of different countries in china often no guidelines focus on or uh, include humbleness and it's some some type of property or value that we here in the west don't really look at and probably we need to take more the humble humbleness yes. and you, being humble about what can be done with technology or not. So maybe it's also something to learn also in ethics from China. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think about the virtue of humility a lot in this context when I think about um, the kind of overpromising uh, with respect to things like uh, autonomous vehicles, especially in the United States, right, um, where I, I think a lot of people you know, approved of, of Tesla's sort of let's beta test on, on public roads uh, approach. but there's an argument that the lack of humility there has actually uh, impeded the development of sustainable, yeah. safe integration of yeah. autonomous vehicles on yeah. the roads um, because people are beginning to develop a, a very negative attitude as a result of some of the, you know, perceptions yeah. um, that, yeah. that this isn't necessarily being done in a, in a, in a way that uh, consults the public or, or brings the public interest suitably to the, to the center. Mm. Um, so I think we, if humility, again, is a thing that, we might be able to see as a driver of long-term sustainable innovation and progress instead of something that holds us back. Yes, definitely. Um, I wanna come back to um, the question of governance itself. Um, and um, I, I wanna maybe give you an opportunity to answer this question in a couple of ways. One is maybe to, again, going back to history, thinking about are there particular lessons from the history of uh, governance uh, of technologies or uh, or the or other governance challenges that required creating these new kinds of alliances. Um, are there any lessons from the history of governance that you think um, can help us when we think about governing AI? Or are we going to have to develop really entirely new systems of governance and entirely new kinds of institutions of governance uh, for AI due to its distinctive capabilities? Um, so that's one question. I'm going to kind of combine it with another. There's increasingly also, I think, some growing cynicism in the public about uh, the legitimacy and, and uh, efficacy of, of governments in general and the governance function. Um, uh, there's you know, so much cynicism about the unchecked power of large corporate interests and authoritarian uh, leaders that uh, exploit the, the, uh, the, the population's uh, desires and fears. So, I, I'm also wondering if there's a, a worry here about the a broader loss of public faith in the very notion of governance. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so how do you, how should we think about these really difficult, deep challenges with, with, with governing AI when governance itself is such a fraught and contested and fragile notion right now? Well, those are (laughs) (laughs) big questions. questions, I'm a philosopher. That's what we do. I'm I'm just an engineer. I build stuff. (laughs) Let me see if I can uh, ever go at that. Uh, So, I think that indeed uh, there is this, there are two things. One indeed that there is a a lack of trust in governments in general uh, across the the globe. And at the same time, there is definitely a lack of trust on the the big corporations. And there is uh, increasingly this uh, feeling that those big corporations, probably a very correct feeling, those big corporations have more say over what our life looks like than many of the governments and the, the lack of uh, democratic legitimacy of this type of uh, 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 corporations is definitely an issue of concern. But at the same time, I think there is a, a kind of a complex uh, laziness of ourselves to uh, accept things as they are. Uh, Yes, those companies are big and they uh, give us all this type of uh, stuff and uh, yeah, we cannot do nothing else than sit and accept it and uh, complain maybe about it. Yes, governments are maybe not the most uh, effect- effective or the, but what can we do? Let's just sit and uh, watch the next Netflix uh, series. And I think that there is also a, a very large need for a wake up call of all of us uh, as citizens, as, uh, as uh, people to really take our our own responsibility as well. It's the responsibility is not just on those with power, but it's it's only there because we give them that power. And we give them that power because often of this laziness or kind of uh, uh, sitting in our our, uh, uh, own banks and uh, do nothing. So we really need also to realize that all of us are part of the game and all of us also have the responsibility to to take a role in the in the in the process, we uh, we have, uh, with respect to the large corporations, as consumers, we do have a, a huge power over them. Without us as consumers, they have no way to go, and as governments, it's the same. Without us as citizens, government have nothing to do. So uh, we, I really would like to appeal to all of us ourselves to to take the the role that we need to take. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think especially if we're talking about people who are currently in circumstances of relative comfort and security, and for that reason, you know, aren't necessarily motivated to um, institute political uh, or governance changes to to make a more legitimate and sustainable system. So uh, I I think the the responsibilities right are very different for those who are currently disempowered by the system explicitly and have relatively few levers to pull on compared with those of us who are relatively comfortable and still not pulling those levers. Yes, yes, definitely. There there are levels of responsibility all over. But actually, I was both uh, both of us have been recently in the north of Sweden in uh, one of the Arctic research centers. And we had a lot of discussion about sustainability and AI with sustainability researchers there. And also one of the comments of one of the top researchers there is that he goes all over the world talking about sustainability, about climate change, giving the numbers and the 
putting it all and people really get very engaged during their talk and then after that what you go do you go watch netflix or you go do whatever else so it's indeed those of us in the which can have more power or are in in those situations in which we can mean more definitely have more responsibility and of course uh, AI or governance might be not a life-threatening, it's definitely for us not a life-threatening thing, but also for those in, 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 in situations of uh, uh, more problematic situations is not the first thing they think about. Yeah. But in a sense, I think that all of us, including those which have been disfavored by the, the situations, also have something to say and we have a voice. And the, oh, all, all of them, all of us. Yeah, I was going to say, I, mean, I think you, your fundamental, your core point there about the agency we all have here is, 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 is crucial. And I think the, for me, the role for government there is, is probably twofold. The, the first is around equipping citizens with the, the skills to be effective digital citizens. So, you know, to, to take advantage of that agency, to understand the choices and, and control that they have. Um, and, and that's something, you know, that is, is a fundamental uh, uh, good that we should be expecting of our education systems. And, and, you know, so that would be one big, big area for, for government action, I think, mm -hmm. in this space. And I think the other is to try to ensure that the ways in which um, we seek to um, regulate and, and govern these technologies actually enables people to meaningfully engage with them. I think one of the things, you know, we talked about good regulation earlier. I think one of the things that I often feel we're at risk of doing is actually abdicating that responsibility and trying to push all of that um, that that uh, that very often very complicated decision making about um, how I don't know information is used or put all of that um, accountability or, or responsibility into the hands of the citizen and and actually the role of government here should be to try to create the regulation that enables people to make. And meaningful decisions at the point where they need to meet yeah. make them um and that I, I think is a work in progress and certainly um you know something that we're we're trying to work on yeah that's great yeah so i think now uh is a good opportunity uh, to uh, begin to take some some questions uh, we're going to lead off with some questions from uh, uh students and uh postdoctoral researchers in the center for technomoral futures who are supported by uh, the uh, Bailey Gifford studentships and, and, and uh, 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 research program in AI and data ethics. So within the center, we have uh, 11 PhD researchers and two postdoctoral researchers who are working all of them across different disciplines uh, on uh, concrete research challenges in AI and data ethics. Uh, and a few of them uh, are uh, uh, coming here today with some specific questions for, for you, and then we'll uh, turn to general questions from, from the audience. So those of you on Zoom, uh, again, uh, now is the time to put your questions in uh, uh, if, you, if you have them, and we'll take them in a few moments. Um, but first I wanna uh, introduce um, uh, Joe Noteboom. So uh, Joe is uh, a second year PhD student here in the Center in Education and Sociology, working on the ethical and social futures of data-driven education. Uh, so Joe, feel free to stand up and Thank you. Is that, yeah, okay. Right, thanks for the, the great talk so far. Um, and you've kind of touched on what I wanted to ask about a bit already, but maybe we can dig a bit more into it. Um, so I'm thinking of uh, the 
quite a good deal of prominent um, criticism recently about the undue influence of private actors and, and platforms and infrastructures in in AI ecosystems and public life and in universities, which is, I guess, my particular area of interest. Um, and I'm thinking of things like uh, Meredith Whitaker's recent piece on the, the steep cost of capture, which you may have seen. Um, so in this context, I guess I'm wondering how we can ensure that AI alliances serve the public interest and I guess the, the common good. Well, I'll maybe start with that. And, and um, so, so, you know, first of all, with a confession, because Scotland's AI strategy, one of the fundamental activities and commitments is to build an AI alliance. So that particular language <laughs> I just happened to pick up on. Um, but I guess that the reason for that is that um, uh, we see that alliance as being about some uh, creating a space to bring together, you know, industry, innovators, academia, the public, the third sector together. So I, so I suppose that there's something about how we um, try to architect those alliances and ecosystems such that they, that they bring all of those interests together and they're not exclusive to and, and controlled by you know, particular interests or, or corporations. I think that would be to the detriment of everybody um, uh, uh, um, in this space. So that, that's, I suppose, the, the, the context in which I'm thinking about it. The, the, the challenge then for us, I guess, is to get that meaningful public engagement um, and ongoing engagement and ongoing dialogue around um, the sorts of issues that, um, that, that we need to consider as part of that process. So there needs to be that investment in um, creating the spaces for that. And we, we, you know, um, again, we can, we can think a little bit about what those, those might look like. But um, I think coming back to, I think you talked about public interest in particular. And I, and I think that is something I'd, I'd just like to come in, turning to that. That's the really tricky part because public interest, what I, what I mean when I say that and what you mean when you say that and the next guy um, or gal, we're, we're all talking about a different thing. <laughs> and so unpacking that and getting to a common understanding sits at the core of so much of this. Um, and, you know, that's why, um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, we, we really need, you know, for example, we're thinking about how we, um, use public sector data to support innovation and in the public interest and unpacking that question is fundamental. You know, is the public interest economic? Is it, is it social? Is it environmental? Um, and so I, I think a, a focus on, on that and, and those sorts of issues is, and questions is, is, is really important to making this all work. No, I fully agree. And I think that the, the core issue is First, to realize that in an alliance, everybody has a different interest in, uh, in the connection. So it's not like we are all uh, agreeing on everything, but we see that there is an importance to bring our own interests or the, the interests of each party, party together. It's better realized by working together. So it's very important to have this uh, discussion about what do you mean by uh, what do you want to put in the alliance what do the other one wants to put in the alliance and agree both that they the the interests are different but that there is a core common uh, issue that the, is meaningful for all of the the people in the alliance and i think that this discussion agree, understanding what are the motivations and the the objectives for all the different parties in the in the alliance and what are the, the different meaning and the, the way the the languages of all of them uh, into uh, 
kind of translating from the language of each of them that I think are, are core to, to make the alliances work. Otherwise, it's just some piece of paper. Or... Great. Uh, our next question uh, is from uh, Ellen Wilkie. Uh, conveniently sitting right next to Joe. Uh, <laughs> Ellen's a first year PhD in philosophy and politics working on the ethics of data-driven campaigning. Thanks for a great talk so far. Um, you've already started sort of touching on my question, but I think it'd be interesting to dive a bit deeper. Um, the UK having left the EU is quite a conspicuous issue when talking about shared values and potential alliances between Scotland and the EU. How, if at all, do the political relationships between the bodies affect the possibility for uniting under their shared values? And how can effective alliances for shared action be built in more complex political circumstances? Mm -hmm. yep. uh, yes, of course, the, it's the elephant in the room, maybe, and the idea that uh, we... Uh, but in, in other hand, the, it's not the only platform in which uh, UK and the European Union are... Uh, in, in the European Union part, that we are now separate, but we are joined in many different other uh, platforms. Both, uh, both uh, groups are part of GPI, the Global Partnership on AI. Both are part of UNESCO, of UNICEF, of United Nations. And at that level, the, I think the discussions are probably even more meaningful in terms of really participatory and engagement and the meaningful, uh, uh, meaningful contribution for the whole world and not only for this uh, specific corner of, of the world. And I think that we should really work at that level and find each other at, at those levels than keeping looking at the difference that uh, brought us apart on a, on a smaller uh, area. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, I guess, um, you know, the, <laughs> the part of the policy line here, but the Scottish government, Scottish minister is very clear that we should remain aligned to the EU as far as we can. And I suppose the the way I look at the, or the way I think about this is that this is actually a bit of an opportunity for Scotland to show distinctiveness um, in the context of, of UK approaches. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we can necessarily um, legislate and regulate in exactly the same way as Europe and align in that sense. But I do think that that we can still um, align, uh, you know, our policy frameworks, our thinking, but also contribute in some of the forums that, that Virginia mentioned to some of the debate around these issues. Um, and fundamentally, you know, the if you like the hard regulation stuff in the sense of you know the legislation, all that kind of brittle stuff. Um, actually, that's that's the manifestation of the, of the values and principles that we're trying to um, uh, see flow through in in, in our policies. So. If we can alight on shared values and shared principles, then actually that that's going to drive much of what we, we do in reality anyway. So I think I, I kind of see it as a bit of an opportunity and um, yeah, a potential differentiator for Scotland. In respect. Uh, our next question comes from um, uh, someone who uh, intended to be here today, but uh, uh, was was prevented from doing so. Um, he's a postdoctoral uh, fellow uh, in theology and ethics of AI mm -hmm. here at the center and in uh, the University School of Divinity, uh, Simeon uh, Sue. So uh, let me ask his question on his behalf yeah. since uh, 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 he wasn't able to join us. Um, he wanted to know what you say to the idea that we uh, might consider moving from the language of responsible AI to accountable AI. Um, so he says the term responsibility seems uh, functionally oriented, focused on the tasks that AI can complete. The term accountability includes responsibility, but also what will happen after an action is taken, which can include undesired outcomes. 
Um, he also says recent studies on emotion, for example, empathy and AI accountability show that the term accountability can provide a broader framework for AI research, uh, for example, linking up with religious norms. Is there an argument for keeping the narrower ideal of responsibility? Hmm. Interesting, because I, I see it exactly wider. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, but maybe because it's of my engineering background, I see responsibility like a more active uh, concept than accountability. Accountability feels like, uh, like I said before, it's a posteriori. You do something and then you check whether or not who is accountable for whatever happens. Mm -hmm. And responsibility is more active and it's more direct, at least in my interpretation, it's more direct to the development of the system. And it's definitely not, like we said already in the beginning, it's not about the AI technology, not about AI systems, it's about this ecosystem of uh, people, organizations, institutions and systems, of course, which together really uh, can take these active uh, steps towards being responsible to what happens. So I think that we definitely need accountability as well, but I, I, I see the responsibility as being the broader concept, but maybe it's a matter again of interpretation. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's a really interesting take on it, Virginia. I mean, certainly that accountable piece um, has plenty of challenges wrapped up in it already, doesn't it? In terms of, well, what are the, the mechanisms for accountability and how do we understand accountability in the context of, of the systems that um, contribute and the thinking and the, the actors that contribute to the development of AI technologies and solutions. Um, so there's plenty to unpack in there. I mean, I suppose I kind of think about that accountability piece, therefore, as also being then the means by which we hold those different actors in a system to account for the way they've contributed to those mm -hmm. things. So there's a sort of set of issues around that. But I also recognize what you're saying, Virginia, that responsibility then almost gets into the space of um, irrespective almost of your accountabilities, then actually um, putting yeah. yourself in the place of, um, yeah. uh, 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 as you say, being, being responsible for them. Um, and again, that's a really interesting uh, and tricky concept in the concept context of a of a technology that often has lots of actors that contribute to both the development and then operation operation of it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, mm -hmm. delivery of it. Um, so yeah, the, these two. So I suppose I probably came into this conversation thinking that accountability was 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 the gold standard, and and um, I'm probably coming away from it thinking that we need to think about both of these things in parallel. Mm -hmm. Actually, in my work, I often talk about art, the art of AI, and art stands for accountability, responsibility, and transparency. Mm -hmm. So I think the, all of the issues are uh, important. But what, I, I, the responsibility for me, it's kind of this feeling of doing the right thing, irrespectively whether or not someone is going to make you accountable for it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of more... A higher standard. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Great. So our uh, uh, next question is from uh, Claire Barali. Uh, Claire. Uh, Claire is a first year PhD student in the School of Informatics and the Edinburgh Law School working on enabling ethical human AI reasoning in international law. Thank you for the talk. So my question is more about the links between the AI legal frameworks and the research, whether it's academic or company driven. So do you think accountability and responsibility can be more important than scientific progress when it comes to AI? And should research and more AI deployment slow down in order for countries and organizations to get a strong legal AI framework or research guidelines? Yeah. 
So, uh, I don't know, irresponsible scientific progress doesn't really sound like something we want <laughs> to achieve. <laughs> but yeah, uh, of course, academic freedom and academic uh, scientific progress is definitely important. And as long as we keep uh, at the, the broad academic uh, 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 thinking and um, uh, reasoning space, I think that, that we need to have uh, the, the space to develop and to identify and to uh, test the different types of ideas. But once we start applying this uh, scientific uh, progress, uh, scientific uh, uh, results into real life, then we cannot do that without responsibility and accountability. I mean, I guess I, I sort of see, if we think about these as two separate sort of endeavours uh, to begin with, as you know, one as being the sort of let, let's drive forward progress on the technology and help, help end all the sort of moral and ethical issues that might sit around it. And then the other extreme of, um, um, well, we absolutely must solve all of those ethical and moral issues before we make progress on those other things. Um, neither one of those is particularly satisfactory, is it? Because there's going to be adverse outcomes whichever way you go. Um, whichever of those two, two approaches you, you, know, you favour. Mm -hmm. um, not least because if you, if you focus on the moral and ethical and unpacking all of that and solving all of those really tricky problems we've been discussing today, before you make progress on the, the technology, other actors who don't favour your balance will, you know, will, will displace you and, and you'll be left, you'll lose agency. And, and so, so the trick here isn't that to have these, see these things as intention, it's to make sure that we advance them on them in parallel and they each inform each mm -hmm. other. I'm sorry to give you a second plug in the same conversation, Shannon, but that is why the Centre for Tech Moral Futures is so important because <laughs> I will take work. it. <laughs> Absolutely, because these two things need to progress in, in parallel and actually inform each other as, right. uh, yeah, as exactly. well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we've got some great questions um, from our online audience, uh, and then uh, I'll alternate between taking questions from the online audience and taking quest other questions from uh, the audience in person here. Um, so the, the first question uh, from our online audience is from uh, Mark Wong, uh, who asks, um, well, first, uh, Mark says uh, that he completely agrees with the need for meaningful public engagement and participation. Um, could the panelists tell us more about what initiatives and plans there are in Scotland? Um, sorry, it just went away from me. Um, so, but the, I, I do remember what the, uh, what the question, oh, it's, now it's in the answered column, sorry. Um, <laughs> could the panelists tell us more about what initiatives, plans there are in Scotland at the moment on this front or in other countries, giving Scotland examples to aspire to? So certainly some in, in Scotland, one of the things we've been doing is, um, for example, the CivTech challenge we ran or we are running around how we give um, people greater agent, trust and agency over algorithmic decision making and with, a, with an initial focus on um, children, young people and their carers. And we actually went into that pretty open minded about how we might approach sort of solving or I say solving that that's somewhat aspirational, but addressing that problem and making progress on that problem. Um, and, I, and I think where we've we've landed is um, trying to build, I was talking earlier about infrastructures for public engagement. So, so trying to trying to build um, citizen communities that can help give us meaningful and, and engaged feedback on, uh, you know, new technologies or new solutions in which, we're, which we want to develop around AI. 
and to build that into, you know, there was a comment made earlier about, Virginia, you made about how um, uh, ethical and moral thinking needs to be built in from the ground up. So to do exactly that, so to use these citizen communities to provide us with feedback and engagement um, and, and challenge on uh, the sort of through the full life cycle of development of technology. So that, that was a good example. And all of that enabled naturally by some wonderful technology and magic, but the fundamental core of it being about this these engaged citizen communities that are empowered and enabled to, to, to feed back to us and through the process. So that, that's something that um, we are building, we have built, and that we'll start to develop and, and um, uh, de deploy um, as, as part of our approach um, through Scotland's AI playbook and, and Scotland's AI strategy. And you know, to come to the second part of the question, um, that's also an example of where we've learned from elsewhere, because you know, the, the people we're working with on that have brought lots of experience from sort of um, things like algorithmic registers in places like the Netherlands. And so, you know, we're, we're building on the shoulders of, of others and, and trying to um, contribute to that shared endeavor, if you like. Um, so, yeah, just one example. Yeah, it was about Scotland Great. and I think we, sure. given the time, we can go, go on. Yeah, we only have time for a few more questions, but um, we do have the opportunity for a question from the audience. James. Thank you very much. Um, I lots of questions that came into that discussion. Um, one, I'd like to start saying, you hardly actually talked about what the leaders are talking about. I'd like to hear some more kind of concrete examples of is new computer technology in its particular places and the context. James, um, just so that online oh, they can hear, hear it. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I want. To, could you could you give some more concrete examples of, of this use of computer tech, new computer technologies? Um, because we talk in very vague terms about AI, but I've actually no idea what is it we're talking about. So, <laughs> um, one approach is to think very much in terms of particular industrial sectors, industrial uses. Each of those, each of the sectors in our uh, society has very different traditions of regulation, of accountability. Um, how do these new technologies get a, get taken into each one of those sectors and developed? Do we need any sort of overarching AI principles and regulations? Does that make any sense? Um, or should we really be focusing on how it's incorporated into medical devices, into auto, automation, mm -hmm. auto, automobiles, into um, workforce monitoring or what, any, any of the hundred other things? What's the point of having a general, yes, talking about AI at all? And can you give some concrete examples of how accountability or responsibility works in particular sectors or use cases? Mm -hmm. Well, the definition of AI, that's <laughs> if you want. I, I, I do agree with you that it is very important to uh, bring the responsibility and accountability down to the sectors and to the, the, the specific requirements, the specific characteristics of uh, uh, sectors like uh, healthcare or uh, autom uh, automation or things like that. But in other hand, it is important to have a, a broader view about the, the field. And basically, when I talk about AI, and there are, there are many, many definitions, and no one really agrees on what AI is or not. But when I talk about it in this type of generic uh, level, I mean, basically, any type of computer mediated decision making. So whenever there are decision making um, 
uh, issues in which, in one way or another, you do have some computational support or computational in intervention within the decision-making process. And because decision-making processes are so widely uh, spread and appear in so many different uh, fields of, uh, of uh, uh, industry or fields of society, I do believe that it's important to look at it from a, a common uh, perspective. And therefore, I think it's important to have some agreement in terms of uh, general principles for AI, whatever we mean by AI, uh, but um, at the general level, because it's really uh, decision making is all over the place. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think, well, you'd expect me to, wouldn't you? But um, I think, um, yeah, I, I do think of it as being about sort of providing a sort of horizontal framework for understanding how we use these technologies. Um, and that might be about things like, you know, what, what I was discussing earlier about how we engage citizens meaningfully in the development of these technologies when that's the right thing to do. Um, or it might be about the sort of um, horizontal principles we apply to them. But that doesn't mean that um, the you know job done as you say um, if you think about um, I don't know uh, you know application of algorithmic decision making in the context of healthcare it's clearly particularly when um, uh, you know it's a medical device it needs to comply with software as a medical device regulation and and that applies across different sectors so that that sectoral regulation the sort of vertical regulation needs to needs to build on that, that sort of horizontal um, framework if you like and. I, I, in, in a lot of ways, I don't think that's necessarily all that different to, um, I mean, I guess data protection is, if, yeah, I mean, it's kind of related, I suppose, unfortunately, but data protection is another example of where that happens, you know, so we have sort of horizontal regulation across the data protection domain, um, and then there are particular, um, uh, in the case of um, medicine, again, in healthcare, there are particular approaches adopted and, and sets of medical ethics that sit around that. Um, in, in, in that field in healthcare. So, um, yeah, I think these are necessary and there are lots of, um, yeah, I can't remember the first part of your question, but, you know, concrete examples. I mean, yeah, things like um, uh, Im imaging diagnostics or, you know, if we think about that definition of AI, um, you know, it, it, it could be sort of, as I was saying earlier, almost any, and as Virginia was saying, I suppose almost any kind of algorithmic decision-making where um, a data-driven technology is used to um, drive decision-making operationally or, yeah, what have you. So we are unfortunately running uh, close to the end of the hour, and there are a lot of great questions uh, uh, on the Zoom that are going to be stranded, but um, uh, hopefully we can just sort of use them uh, for, for future conversations because this particular one is is never going to be finished. It's going to be an open-ended, lifelong challenge uh, for, for us to meet in this century and beyond um, to figure out how to uh, innovate responsibly in a way that's compatible um, with human flourishing, with planetary flourishing, um, with wisdom, uh, and uh, in a way that uh, brings uh, the uh, technical power of creation with the moral power of creation together uh, uh, in a way that um, uh, uh, that uh, that we want uh, and um, that we can justify. So I want to uh, thank you all for coming here today, both in person and those of you who joined us on Zoom. I want to thank uh, our fantastic uh, and generous speakers, Virginia and Albert, uh, and our PhD students and postdocs uh, for their thoughtful questions. Um, we hope that you'll all want to be part of future conversations in this series. 
so to sign up uh, for our mailing list for more information about uh, this series and other events at the center, uh, please email us at ctf at ed.ac.uk or visit our website or follow us on Twitter at at Center TM Futures. And until next time, uh, thanks again from all of us at the Center and the Edinburgh Futures Institute. Uh, have a wonderful day and thanks again. Thank you.